So where else are you traveling? I'm in China quite a bit. It's like you know, such heavy surveillance. So if you jaywalk or if you beat, you know, the light turns red and you're trying to scramble across, it'll take a mugshot and it'll post it right there on a screen in front of you. It's you know, scary. It, it is scary, right? So my contrast is India, where nobody, nothing, every red light is a mere suggestion at best. It's like people are like, why stop? The thing is working without lights. You just sort of... I got across. Last I got across, time. Yeah. yeah. So when you compare that, it's like, wow, some kind of social control can be effective, but do we want to go down that road? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. I hope not. On the last episode, I spoke with Sarah Chu at the Innocence Project about forensic science technology and its misapplication in the criminal justice system. And you know, I haven't stopped thinking about our conversation. I have so many more questions about this. So I caught up with Rebecca Wexler, professor at Berkeley Law and a fellow at the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings. She's written for the New York Times, the LA Times and Slate, just to name a few. And she's really knowledgeable about algorithmic bias and the role of technology in the criminal justice system. Rebecca, welcome to Life Meet Tech. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really thrilled to be here. Rebecca, I saw a headline that read, accused by an algorithm. And it got me wondering, how much of a criminal justice system depends on technology these days? The criminal justice system, like so much of our lives, as you're saying, it's becoming automated. We're all sitting here on our computers in the pandemic. Now we're also having criminal investigations and criminal trials by computer. It's every stage, every stage of the justice system. So tell me, one of the things you've written about extensively is this black box nature. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Definitely. Look, we inherited a legal system that has certain commitments to transparency. We have this idea that if you're going to be prosecuted, you should get to see the evidence against you. It's a simple thought. Right. Let's show you the evidence, let you challenge it. And now we're shifting to trial by algorithm or trial by computer. And the computers aren't open to examination in the same way that people are open to examination. What's happening is that we're being accused by software systems or by the output of software systems. But private companies that build those systems and sell them for profit to the government are arguing that their intellectual property rights should let them shut it down from scrutiny by the people it's being used to convict. I find that problematic, don't you? I mean, transparency is so critical. And why would we want to trade off on transparency? Well, I like what you were saying that transparency is so important. I think that's right. I mean, it's just intuitive for people. We have public access to the courts. We have trials that are supposed to be open to scrutiny so that we can have legitimacy and trust in the system and know that it's being done properly. Well, if I have a really good algorithm, why not open that up to scrutiny? Why not allow at least defense counsel under a protective order. And yes, companies are saying, here, I'll give you some information. I'll give you a description of the methodology, but I'm not going to give you, say, the source code, or in some cases, the user manual, or in some cases, other aspects of the system, the way a machine learning model structure. And so the question then is, is that 
information that they're trying to withhold relevant. And if it's relevant, we should disclose it. That's the rule we have for human witnesses. A regular old person, you get up on the witness stand and somebody asks you a question, you have to answer the question asked. Now we have assessments for, is that an appropriate question? Is it getting at something that's just harassing? Is it trying to, say, raise the cost of prosecution? So if defense counsel asks for information that is irrelevant, they're not allowed to get it and they shouldn't. But the point is, a judge decides whether the information they ask for is relevant. And once the judge makes that ruling, we should treat these software systems the same way we treat everybody else. If there's a concern about some undue burden from some invasiveness from disclosure, we make you reveal the information under a protective order. And the same standard that applies to people should also apply to these systems. So currently you're saying we can't do that, that there is a firewall. We cannot ask the software the kinds of questions that you would normally ask a human witness. Is that correct? What I'm saying is the same standard that governs the questions we ask humans should also govern the questions we ask developers about their software. They might be slightly different questions because you'd want to know different things about a software and then you'd want to know about a human. But the human can't say, hey, that's my IP, so I'm not going to answer the question. That's my property, so I'm not going to answer the question. And the developer shouldn't be able to say that either. Do you see movement toward your position on this? I think so. So the problem of developers relying on intellectual property to block transparency in the criminal legal system, it's been a huge problem in the state courts. As a few of these kinds of cases have started hitting federal court, the federal judges have more resources, more time. They're more familiar with business entities litigating before them. And more of the federal judges have been calling the companies bluffs and saying, that's not an appropriate use of intellectual property. Intellectual property is about business competition. This is due process. And we're going to order the disclosure. So yeah, there have been some really interesting federal cases recently that have ordered disclosure. And it's an important position because increasingly we are going with facial recognition technology, for example. I mean, the black box there is even blacker, right? So what do you think is happening with facial recognition technology and what safeguards do you see that are essential? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. Look, there's all sorts of kinds of technologies that are coming in to automate different aspects of our criminal legal system. So we've got some more traditional software that relies totally on source code instructions that are manually authored by human developers. We've also got these machine learning systems that are coming in where there's less knowledge about how the system works even from the developer. So the questions we wanna ask about those systems slightly differ with a machine learning system. Now, the Compass system is a machine learning model for predicting likelihood of recidivism. And the company that developed that system claimed an intellectual property right to withhold information about input factors and their weights that went into the model. So I agree with you that there's going to be a little bit of of an issue of, well, if the developers don't even know how these machine learning systems work or they can't explain, but that doesn't mean we should allow developers to claim a brand new, unfounded intellectual property right 
to withhold what information they do have about their system. Absolutely. You brought up Compass and you've written about this particular algorithm, about a particular case, Glenn Rodriguez. So tell us about Glenn and what happened. Yeah, yeah. So I first met Glenn when I was working for the Legal Aid Society of New York City's criminal defense practice. And Glenn made a mistake early in his life, and he had been involved with a crime. He was convicted and sentenced to decades of prison time, which he served. And then when he was a middle-aged man, he was up for parole. Now, Glenn had had a nearly perfect disciplinary record for the prior decade. But even so, when he went up for parole, he received a parole denial. And the parole board said he was denied because a computer system called Compass had predicted that he had a high likelihood of recidivating or committing more crimes if he were released. So Glenn was really shocked by this. And since he knew so many people that he'd been in prison together with for so much time, he started swapping information about the Compass system with other fellow prisoners who'd also received Compass ratings. And they figured out by kind of reverse engineering the system that this one question, this one input was creating very disparate results for them. So it turns out that factor was a completely subjective factor. It was called question 19. And it was a question that asks the human being who's conducting the compass assessment to make a subjective evaluation about whether the person they're assessing has a disciplinary problem. It actually says, do you think this person has a disciplinary problem? And if they check yes, that was spinning the whole result to a high risk score and it meant Glenn doesn't get parole. It's a key lesson for us because we have this tendency as humans to tend to think, well, you've got a computer, it's automated, it must be objective. But in reality, not only are humans making these things, but humans are also using them. And when the human uses it in any given case, there are often subjective choices they make about how to input data, what information to feed the system, what assumptions, parameters, thresholds to set. And all of those subjective considerations can have a really big effect on the outcome. So it might be that we've got human beings actually accusing people of crimes, but masking it with a computer system. So many interesting insights there. Although we have an algorithm, which is intended to be less biased, and it's also intended to take multiple dimensions, you find one human assessment that went awry driving the process. You mentioned another thing there, the trust we have in computers in all aspects of life, from the recommendations we get on Netflix to choices about romantic partners, what have you. I mean, choice of Netflix is not so important. It's okay if it was the wrong uh, recommendation. <laughs> we can live with it. But here, the, the mistakes are too costly. So we find this bias toward excessive trust in technology. I think that's right. The mistakes are too costly. And yet we have this tendency to defer to technologists, to technology. The court system is not about that. We have a jury. We rely on a jury of your peers. And we do that because we think it should be everyday people. 
who make these very consequential decisions about whether we are going to sentence somebody to incarceration, separate them from their family, take away their freedom, in some cases, take away their life. It's everyday people that make that choice, not scientists, not companies, not developers who are in it to make a buck. Right, right. So I interrupted you. What happened? What is the rest of the story for Glenn? I mean, it was just so impressive that somebody that Glenn was able to do this. But he tried to appeal his parole denial based on this information that he figured out by reverse engineering the system. It's very challenging to appeal a parole denial. He tried at different levels to get review of that mistake in his assessment. First, one person said, oh, yeah, that's a mistake. We'll let you reassess. We'll do another one. And then that person left and somebody else didn't, didn't happen. So it's an example of how costly these things can be in a general criminal legal system that has broken procedures. Fortunately for Glenn, though, six months later, he was up again for parole. He was nervous the same thing would happen again. But instead, the parole board said, look, we've evaluated your past decade here. You have been a model of rehabilitation, have participated in multiple service projects, raising puppies behind bars to help wounded veterans, all sorts of things. And we're going to grant parole. So he was able to go home to his family after decades. And he's now working in a youth mentorship, public service position, giving back to society now that he's home. So in Glenn's case, there was subjective human judgment involved and the algorithm was not entirely at fault because it was responding to the human input. But if there had been better scrutiny and human intervention, this awful mistake by the algorithm could have been avoided and ultimately Glenn would have been released earlier. It's a canary in the coal mine. You know, if Compass, you know, if there hadn't been human error, that might have been fine, but we don't necessarily know because there's such a lack of transparency about these systems. We don't know everything about them. They may work well in certain circumstances, but until we can scrutinize them fully, we won't know whether they've worked in any given case, at least not know well enough to convict somebody. And there are, unfortunately, also horrible examples of fraud and negligence in forensic analysis. Like what kind of fraud or negligence? Annie Dukin, an individual crime lab analyst in Massachusetts for years, was making up the results of the drug tests. Unfortunately, there are people who, who lie. And that's true with software and it's true with humans. There have also been examples of existing software systems in the current criminal legal system making mistakes. The face recognition, false identification is one. There's an example of a murder trial where two DNA forensic software systems reached differing conclusions about whether the suspect had contributed DNA to the crime scene or not. So you've got different systems reaching different results. And how are we supposed to know what's right and what's not? So what is happening there? How is that possible that two systems could diverge so much. Is this the argument you're making that we should know more about the decision rules, the source code, the logic that's driving these assessments? This is one reason why we should know more. Absolutely. Just the fact that you could have different systems analyzing the same thing and reaching different results makes me pretty suspicious about relying on any one of them to convict somebody of a crime. 
Let me ask you about this uh, Volkswagen case. You've written about this. This is ridiculous, right? Yeah, it is ridiculous. Volkswagen actually drafted, wrote fraudulent source code to conceal the fact that their cars were spewing worse emissions than they appeared to be on environmental tests for whether they were roadworthy. This was so cheeky. They wrote software that when you go and park it in the garage when they're doing the emission test. The system was smart enough to figure out that the steering was stationary. It had other criteria, variables that it took into account and said, oh, okay, it seems like this is inside. It's being tested right now. And then they used a different set of criteria. They imposed all this pollution control on it to pass the test. The moment the person drove away from the garage, then all those limits that they imposed would come off and the cars were polluting the environment. This seems so unbelievable that somebody would do that. Yeah, it really did happen. The way that you described it is also there's been a ton of litigation after the fact to try to correct for this and hold Volkswagen liable. I haven't followed all of it since writing briefly about that a couple of years ago, so I don't know the latest on it. But exactly what you said is my understanding as well. So one of the reasons why we like algorithms is they tend to be if done well, they tend to be unbiased. Computers being dispassionate, cold, calculating machines don't have to be subject to the same biases that we have as humans. Has that promise materialized, particularly in the criminal justice context? Well, I agree and disagree, but we want the algorithms to be unbiased. We really want to fix the problems with human judges. There are some things that algorithms are free from that humans are subject to. Algorithms don't get tired and they don't get hungry. They don't have to be paid <laughs> an hourly wage. You know, yes. These kind of biases, I could agree with you. The algorithm doesn't have those. But the algorithms have other types of biases that are designed into the system. Hmm. So just because they don't get tired or they don't get hungry doesn't mean that they are actually approaching a question from a neutral, objective perspective. We have algorithms designed on historic data. The data is the reflection of prior human conduct. So algorithms that rely on past criminal justice data, for instance, are predicting the future based on observations about how people fared in a people-driven system. Now, with face recognition, it's been shown that the current systems are trained on primarily white men, faces of white men, and therefore their higher false positive rates with black, with other people of color, with women, with younger and older faces. And so there is a problem where communities who have already been subjected to disproportionate policing are now going to bear the burden disproportionately of false positives from the use of these automated systems. This is a really important point that communities of color that have been subject to systemic racism right. and the hope that machines could somehow be you know, less prejudiced 
that really has not materialized. Is that correct? That's the way I see it happening, unfortunately. It is a hope, but we're seeing these problems with the existing machines. At least two factors I picked up from your description. One would be humans are making up these programs, so some of the human biases creep into the design. And the other point I picked up was training data in some of the machine learning algorithms. It unfortunately comes from a biased society, and And so those biases, again, are fed into the machine learning algorithm. I agree. That's a really good way to put it. Now, there must be hope. Where is the silver lining? How do we come up with a smart, enlightened way to think about the coexistence of both human judgment and AI judgment, particularly in the area of criminal justice where the stakes are so high? You know, there are quality assurance standards for software if you're going to use it to fly an airplane. But there aren't right now, clear quality assurance standards for software that you're going to use to sentence somebody to death. Why not? So you asked a really hard question. There's not a perfect path forward. I'm not a technologist. I'm a lawyer. But what I can tell you is we have spent a lot of time trying to design procedures to protect due process in the criminal courts. And those procedures, they've been far from perfect, but we should continue to pursue the ideals of those procedures. They're there to try to protect the legitimacy of our criminal legal system and the truth-seeking of the courts. We shouldn't lose them because of the financial interests of a software developer. And so they can help create some buffer, some safeguards, some standards that will incentivize developers to build the better technology designs. If we say you're going to prosecute somebody with this tool, you're going to sell this tool for profit by use by our courts, our taxpayer funded courts, we're going to demand that you subject those tools to proper due process scrutiny. So you would say then there is room for rulemaking and policies that demand more transparency or more self-governance on the part of the technology designers and makers? Yeah. I mean, look, you have a Sixth Amendment right to confront your accuser, to face your accuser face-to-face and confront them, to cross-examine, to see the evidence against you and scrutinize and contest it. And a key reason that you have that right is we think that it helps ensure that the evidence is going to be as reliable as possible. If we're going to convict somebody, we want to convict them on reliable evidence. Well, subjecting the evidence to scrutiny and testing through the crucible of cross-examination is one way that we try to achieve reliability and legitimacy. So if we maintain that structure, that will help regulate the technology design and development. Because if technologists say there's a Volkswagen software developer out there who left that company, jumps into a forensic software startup and says, I know I'm going to try my tricks here. They do that. And then we open their tool to scrutiny and cross-examination in a criminal case. We'll be able to expose that fraud. So, Rebecca, one of the things I really like about the U.S. system is that we really want to give the benefit of the doubt to the defendant. You know, we want to make a strong case, right? Beyond reasonable doubt kind of idea. I think that's a very cherished ideal. I'm so puzzled why a nation that believes in that kind of model would not go the extra mile to demand more transparency and hold algorithms and software programs to that kind of a standard. We have this idea 
that like cases should be treated alike. And that means that once you decide one case, you establish a rule, a precedent that then is going to govern in future cases. This is how the courts actually make legal rules. One of them is a case called Brady. And that was a case from the mid 20th century where the Supreme Court said, if the prosecution knows that they have evidence of innocence, like they're sitting on evidence that shows you're innocent, they have got to give it to the defense. It's not okay for the government to prosecute somebody when it knows they might be innocent. All of those things right now are precedents. But fast forward to 2021 and say now we've privatized the whole thing. We're just buying it from a company. That means the private company possesses evidence that you're innocent, but they're not bound by the Brady precedent because the Brady precedent only applies to the prosecution team. So as the system's getting automated, these other existing precedents that we rely on to guarantee fairness, accuracy, reliability, and truth-seeking are being eroded by the structural shift to outsourcing prosecutions by algorithm. What do you mean outsourcing? Where do we even get this technology from? The military? So to the extent that law enforcement is adopting technologies straight from the military, what we need is to make sure that those technologies are subject to appropriate judicial review. So Rabaka, these days, there are so many new technologies that are being introduced and law enforcement is using these technologies increasingly. But who decides if they will be accepted in court? It's definitely a chicken and an egg thing. Well, I can tell you a story about a, a guy named Daniel Ridgemaiden. There was a military technology called a cell site simulator. This is a device that pretends to be a cell tower and pings your phone to compel it to give over information. It was designed for military use overseas. And the company that manufactures it called Harris Corporation started selling it to U.S. law enforcement for used by police in the United States. Harris Corporation, in part because of their intellectual property, made all the police departments sign contracts that said they're not going to tell anybody that they're using it, not going to tell anybody, even the courts. And so for years, law enforcement was using these things to identify the suspect's location, then telling the judge that they got a tip from a confidential informant without sharing with the judge. And so a guy named Daniel Ridgemaiden was a super tech savvy criminal defendant. He fires all his attorneys because he keeps telling them the only way the government could have located me was by using one of these secret devices. And they're like, we're not gonna argue that in court. So he fires all of them. He represents himself from his jail cell and he discovers evidence that the local law enforcement who arrested him, in fact, used one of these systems. Then he sends like this 10,000 page case file off to all the civil liberties organizations in the country. They ignore him. He sends it again to a graduate student named Chris Segoyan, who repackages it and sends it to the ACLU and the Electronic Privacy Information Center and all these folks. And they're like, wow, I can't believe this really happened, this is a huge crisis. And they have a wave of litigation and policy change at the highest levels. So the Department of Justice, Department of Homeland Security, ICE, all these organizations start now having to say, okay, we admit we're using this tool. And when we're going to go get a warrant 
to try to search for somebody, we're going to actually bother to tell the judge what the technology is we're using and how it works so that the judge can evaluate whether the Fourth Amendment allows us to use that tool in the way that we're deploying it. So that's an example of how one of these systems came to light. But you're right that when we're talking about law enforcement technologies, if they don't tell the judge or if they lie to the judge or if they pretend they found the evidence some other way, then we don't get judicial review. And that's a problem. That's shocking. In fact, all the cases you mentioned are shocking. And also fascinating, after talking with you, I've come to realize how little I know about this. There's a lot to learn and understand. I'm going to study this topic very carefully. Thank you so much. I truly appreciate it. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really a pleasure. And I I just appreciate your reporting on these urgent issues. Thanks, Rebecca. Life Meet Tech is presented by WKAR in association with the College of Communication Arts and Sciences at Michigan State University. Executive producer, Melanie Paul. Audio engineer, Drew Hill. And hosted by me, Prabhu David. Special thanks to my guest, Rebecca Wexler. Please subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you don't miss an episode. And I'll see you next time on Life Meet Tech.